Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. We're back with the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. This is episode 147. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, is this the last podcast we're going to do, or is this the end of the industry? What's going on, man? I'm, I'm freaking out over here. Well, let's start off with roast month. Um, lighten the load here a little bit. First off, we haven't had anyone else leave an official roast month review, but a speaker did send this in this morning in honor of roast month. He said, tell Josh and Nate these are desperate times and you need to make money. So if they could do their part and barely speak during the, today's podcast, that should help with viewership. So, uh, <laughs> what a burn. <laughs> I appreciate that. Also, I Call should the fire department. Yeah. Also, I should I should note that Speakner has officially passed over the prophet of doom. He is no longer the prophet of doom. He now says the coronavirus hysteria is now the prophet of doom because he said that he thought you know if you remember Speakner was scared this is going to fall apart. Da da da. He said the coronavirus has taken it to a level that he did not know was humanly possible. So he is no longer the prophet of doom um, because coronavirus basically debuted him. So. Um, so there's 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 that there's that so so Speakner Speakner the what's it like Speakner the gray or Speakner the white you know he's like he's like Speakner the less or something like that he's, he's Speakner the uh, the prophet of I don't know heck <laughs> Speakner the prophet of inconvenience <laughs> so yeah it is it's brutal out there man it is brutal and um, the Fed's announced what yesterday which is Monday so last night they're cutting the interest rates to almost zero. Crude oil, WTI is at just above 30. My phone is going crazy. I got just below 30 this morning. Yeah, I got yeah, below 30. 28 uh, when I looked at it earlier. My Robinhood account is blowing up with all of the only gas stocks that are, well, there's some that are up, some are down, so kind of a mixed bag so far. So we'll we'll see how that plays out. But, yeah, man, it's it's bad. And, um, you know, uh, before we get, we have a Nas coming on. He'll tell us what he thinks about how bad it is. But one thing I did want to say is that if you are laid off, looking for a job, email your resume to Nate. Nate will include a link or something. in. He, he will figure out how to do this. He's just now hearing this for the first time. We're going to put something in the newsletter, Nate. So people have resumes where there's a page on the website. We can link to their website, you know, whatever that is, yep. or link to their LinkedIn profile, however you want to do that. Get or in touch you, with, us, with us. We'll help you yeah, out. If you have a job opening, put that. we'll put that in the newsletter. Not charging. This is not. This is just... Trying to help out our brothers and sisters out there in the patch because it's going to be, it's, it's going to be, be a rough time. Yeah, it's going to be a rough one. So hopefully, if we can help, you know, uh, some listeners get jobs or folks are hiring, just send it in, and we will figure out how to put that in our newsletter or on the website or something and uh, help folks uh, get the jobs that are out there. So, coronavirus, Josh, do you have it? I don't have it, man. I don't, I don't have, it. have it. I think uh, seventy people in the state of Texas has it, um, and uh, I, I imagine you probably have. 500 about to lose their job so uh yeah this is this is turning into a bunch of mess we officially suggest that our listeners panic and uh we do yes <laughs> i thought we were gonna be like the voice of reason <laughs> yeah well oh, wow. well there's a couple of those if you panic um uh, and you have the money to buy a podcast yeah uh, there's there's that uh, there's always a great podcast to go and listen to when you are panicking. Texas Oil and Gas <laughs> Podcast. Uh, listen to our calming, calming voices. Yeah. We will link to, in the show notes as well, if you are curious, um, some coronavirus numbers kind of that are updated. I'll send that to Nate. He'll put in the, the, show, uh, the show notes. But, yeah, it's, uh, man, it's, it's bad out there. And 
you know, the news gets worse daily. And unfortunately, while I hope the coronavirus hysteria goes away, um, I, I don't think we've hit the bottom of it just quite yet. Agreed. Yeah, so there's an article that came out, Heart Energy. Uh, U.S. energy guru Daniel Jurgen sees no easy way out of oil price collapse. Uh, Ryan, we met, let's see, what day did we go up to the office um, after all this mess started? Let's see, oil prices collapsed. I think it was at, what day was that? I don't remember. It, it was, oh, the, the day after the Saudi, so that. Josh is losing track of time. I yeah. am, yeah, so it's, it's, all, it's all starting to haze together now. So uh, we met up, and we, the, what you said was, I don't see a way out of this. Coronavirus has the demand down. Prices are dropped because of the Saudi-Russia uh, fiasco. So I don't know that we can actually correct this. So this article, this guy is saying basically similar things that you said. I don't, I don't, we don't, there's not an easy path back to $50 oil. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. So essentially the argument that I was making was as prices drop, you expect it's cheaper to buy. That's a no brainer, right? Gas is $1.74 right now or whatever. So you can buy more gas for a dollar than you could before. So, right, right. right. But when the demand it's plummeting because we're shutting down schools and air, uh, people aren't flying, you know, driving, all this stuff. Then the demand to buy the cheap product is not there. So it's a double problem. So the supply is going up. The price goes down. The price goes down. The demand is not going to rise. The demand is actually falling, falling at the same pace, if not more right now. So that makes the prices lower for longer. So then you say, okay, well, let's just, let's just throw out a hypothetical here. Let's say in four weeks that the coronavirus is kind of gone. Okay. Well, then you say, well, in four weeks, how many people lost their job? You know, what's happening with the economy? Because the oil, the, the gas, and the diesel and all that would be cheap in four weeks still. But how many people have jobs to go buy gas and diesel and plastics and stuff like that, right? So that's kind of what he's saying is that it's, it's a multi-prong approach. The best thing for the industry right now would be for the coronavirus to either we, we, we pretend it doesn't exist, and I, this is not medical advice. You know, I'm not saying what you should or shouldn't do, just... From an economic standpoint, the best thing from for the world for oil prices would be just to keep living your lives. Now, obviously, there's inherent risk with that, and so I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying just, just strictly from a dollar standpoint, we're not doing that. So the demand for, for oil is falling. Um, people are going to lose their jobs, not in our industry, but across the U.S. economy now because we're going to shut down businesses, and businesses just can't operate without making money. So, um, you know, your favorite restaurant might not be open in four weeks. You know, your favorite coffee shop might shut down. Um, all those things have effects that you can't, you can't foresee. And that's the scary thing with this. That's the real thing that I'm concerned about is, um, how long does it take to get the oil price back up? And just, I mean, if we ran this out as a scenario, if we said, okay, um, let's just say all these Apple stores are going to shut down. They're probably safe because they have a lot of money. Yeah. But you look at some of these other companies that are say, um, there's not going to be a lot of shopping and. Well, hold on. Let's use the Apple store. And I haven't seen Apple. I'm not sure. Is Apple paying their employees while they're shut down? That's a good question. Because if they're not paying their employees, then their employees can't afford as many groceries. They can't afford their rent. So, right, if they are paying their employees, then they kind of live their lives somewhat the same. They're not driving back and forth to work. So you see it. So, so anytime a company shuts down, are they paying their employees? Is the first thing you have to ask because that will determine whether or not those people can live under the same standard. So, I, so from uh, from some of the. Ex- from some of the experience that I'm having in the in the field, uh, out meeting folks, men of the people, uh, the <laughs> the the general feel is everyone is working from home. They're continuing to be paid. 
I don't know. I don't know how that's going to apply to some of the outside of the oil industry folks. Right. That, that's going to be one of the questions. But if you run a, if you run a, a scenario where um, small business company X, mm -hmm. um, they're not going to have any traffic through their business for the next two months. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen to their employees? Mm -hmm. Can the owner afford to continue them on pay? Continue to pay them? And if he can't, how easy will it be for that company to go back online? Uh, on you know, day 61 when the coronavirus hype is, is done and people can start getting back to normal. Can he just go rehire those employees? How, how fast can we correct this? Because the, the concern, in, in looking at this article, part of the concern is how long will it take to get the demand back where it normally would be? Uh, because it, it might not be a, a straight path forward to, to say demand comes back as soon as this coronavirus hype ends. It, it may not be that straightforward. And that's the, that's the huge concern right now is we need the demand back to offset some of this low price. And I, I mean, that, that's the, that's the big concern. Yeah. And, and so one of the things that I've seen out there is, you know, how do we respond to this? Um, I've heard people say that the, that the U S join OPEC. I've heard people say that the U S should shut down production. I've heard a, a, a lot of different scenarios. The reality is, that there is no scenario right now that's going to be implemented. So that's, I'm not saying the U.S. should join OPEC, but let's just say that you wanted to do that. We're not going to get that done in the middle of the price war. The Saudis and the Russians are not going to be like, oh, okay, hey. And even if we were a member of OPEC, they're, they, they're, they're still fighting each other right now, so they wouldn't matter. Um, shutting down production, I can just say this. I've seen that thrown out there um, by some people. Shutting down production, one of the things that keeps people employed during a, a downturn is the hope of a check, the hope of a check, the hope that you're going to go out and get a job today. Shutting down production would end the hope for anyone who works for upstream companies. Because you'd go, well, we're not getting work for three months, four months, five months. There's, there's no, we know there are no checks coming in. How many people can we afford at current cash level? And then if you shut down production, some of those companies, some of those companies will go bankrupt. Then how do you know you're actually going to get the work back when those companies start drilling again? How are they going to hire you back? Are they going to guarantee you the work? So you want to risk three months of straight overhead in hopes that that your company that your that your EMP company survives, and that they do survive, they decide that that the guy that brought you in he's still there, and that he decides to hire you back. What if they fire someone? What if they fire that guy? So like those are all ideas that sound really good. The problem is there is no good idea right now. The best thing is the most practical. We get past the coronavirus, and the Saudis and Russians stop. The problem is we are not in control of any of those things. So the best thing we have to do is case by case. You know, make a decision and try to figure it out. And that's not what people want to hear, but it's just the reality. And so, you know, shutting down production across the U.S. is not going to happen. Us enjoying OPEC is not going to happen. We're going to go through some times that are just going to suck. And that's, and that's the sad reality. And when we get out of it, we will have less EMP companies. We'll have less service companies. Um, but you would like to think that the ones that make it through will be a little less resistant to overdrilling the market. And we have to take America has to take its responsibility in this. And if you remember, Josh, back to years ago when we started this show, we used to read the headlines, Permian versus OPEC. And we tried to tell people then, that's not a thing. There is no Permian versus OPEC. There's Marathon, there's Devon, uh, there's Chevron, there's XTO, there's Titus, there's, you know, uh, Oxy, just name that those companies are fighting for market share. There's no Permian versus anybody. 
those companies are fighting for their lives right now. And, you know, um, and that, and, and so we're going to see which ones can make it, which ones can't. And it's terrible. It is terrible, terrible, terrible. Getting it off and laying people off is the worst thing in the world. So, so I'm not trying to be callous. Uh, I'm just simply saying, unless we see a massive, a massive uh, reversion on what we've seen the past few weeks, um, things will not get better anytime soon because now we're starting to see the larger economy will be shutting down across the U.S. And that will have, uh, that will actually create less demand for oil and gas. So it's a bad spot. Thanks for starting my day off with such a happy note. Yeah. Well, uh, the next article. Maybe Nas will have good news for us. Maybe. Hopefully. Maybe, maybe, we're, maybe we're downplaying this and Nas will come on and he will be the bastion of hope that we need. That would be awesome. Thank, please, 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 Nas. Please be the bastion of hope. All right, so the next article we had, I think we might skip it. OPEC plus deal collapse, virus double whammy to keep oil in $30 range. So we've already hit that. Let's uh, move on. B&K Petroleum announces annual 2019 results, 75% of 2020 oil production hedged at 56.62. The reason I wanted to talk a little bit about this article, Ryan, was not to get into the weeds of B&K Petroleum, but to just talk about the hedges and, and, and consider for a moment we don't know how many companies are hedged at what. Uh, if only so, we knew a reporter out there who could do an article on that for us. Somebody who knew something about the oil industry, maybe? A trusted source. One that we yeah. would all look to and go, that guy, knows he knows how to report. About. Yeah. If only we had someone like that. We might even invite that person on the podcast to talk about it. That is a distinct possibility, isn't Yeah, so it? That, that's going to be one of the big interesting things to look at is going to be the hedges. Um and uh, you know, hopefully we can bring some more clarity to that in the coming weeks. Um, not sure when when exactly that's supposed to happen, but uh, well, if we could get a reporter to, you know, not write. You know, if you if you if you knew of a reporter and just hypothetically here, who spent every day crushing the Barnett shell, if they took that time and diverted it to something productive like hedges per company, that you know that would be good. That would be good because then you would know because we can report the Barnett shell. Nothing is happening. Yeah, we, we, breaking news. Can you? Yep. Headline: yep. Hard hitting journalism. Text the whole gas podcast reports. Nothing happening in the Barnett Shell. Do we know anybody like that who's actually competent at what he does, though, Ryan? Uh, no, we don't. Well, oh, what you want to do search first is find somebody that knows Cabot Oil and Gas. Yeah, that would be. Yeah. That would be, be a good, good place to good, start. Good place to start. And then we would have a. That'd be, yeah, so, anyways, anyways, if that's just for what's worth, the hedging thing. I, I'm with you. I'm surprised. Hold on. I'm sorry. I went to the HoustonChronicle.com. Um, Large numbers of Texas kids could miss rest of school year. That's the demand problem we're talking about. Amazing. The hedges. Oh, yeah, yeah, hedges. So, yeah, I'm surprised we haven't seen more articles about that. If you guys have some articles on what people's hedges position are, um, you know, where they at, how much they have hedged, that's something that you, I think you're going to start seeing more reporting on because once the hysteria kind of levels off, and I don't know for a week or two weeks or three weeks from that happening, the actual reporting about the facts will start to come in there. And so um, I, I would expect to start to see um, a better understanding of, you know, who has what hedges and, um, you know, where you can expect to, you know, um, you know, who can, who can, you know, who can, as I say, make it, but who has, who's been positioned um, to, to depend on those and who's not. If only we knew. Yeah. Well, I think uh, if, if, if we have several companies that are hedged at 50, they could continue drilling. That would be, uh, that would be good news for some of the people out in the oil patch. I mean, it wouldn't be good for prices you know, in general. Well, that's the thing. If you're dr- yeah, that's the other thing to consider. And this is where, when I talk about these ideas, there's, there's no good idea. So think about this. Let's say that your company 
works for, what is it, Exxon, because they're just kind of the biggest name. Let's say your company, 50% of its work is with Exxon. Do you want Exxon to cut drilling so that um, the price may go back up eventually? Or do you want Exxon to keep drilling so that you get a job? See, the conflict of interest there, it, it cannot be understated. Because if you are in the field working, it's hard for me to argue that you should be concerned about the price more than you should be concerned about feeding your family. Now, I understand we want the price to be high. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's hard for me to tell someone who's out there working 67 hours a week, hey, uh, yeah, let's, let's, stop, let's stop production so that, you know, these prices, that the things that we can't control as the folks on the ground, you know, let's, uh, let's stop production and let's roll the dice here. I want my clients to keep drilling. Yeah. Well, it's a good rule of thumb, uh, Ryan. If your company's working for Exxon, tell them to stop. If our company is. Yes, yes. If keep you, drilling. Yes. Keep drilling, baby. <laughs> yeah. if, if, our, yeah, if, if, you don't, if you feel so strong, then please send us your clients. We'll take over and we'll, we'll help them navigate that stream. But I, I mean, and I'm not trying to be, I'm saying that I think we have to be as serious as we can and uh, about we talk about this because this, this is people's mortgages, kids, babies are coming cancer treatments or you know being paid for there's all kinds of things so it's, it's very hard for me to swallow the hey let's let's tell companies what to do um you know and like speakner is an investor so he has his things and i understand what i understand what speakner says what he says on some of the stuff he sends me because he's, he's an investor he wants to make his money back i get it i know why he says that i also know why the rig hand out there is going dude i they better keep drilling this is my livelihood so i i look at it and i say we all have our own motivations um, in a perfect world, price would be seventy dollars a barrel. We'd just be cooking along. That's not where we're at, and so it's really hard to start making blanket statements about what companies should do, because, man, I don't want anyone losing their job, and and I and I'm not convinced where we're at today, Josh. That even if I said, hey, um, you know, thirty percent have to lose their job, but then get it back in two months, I'm not sure it's going to be that quick. And the way the economy's going, I'm not sure they're going to get a job anywhere else. So. This is so, so, anyways, so, um, yeah. But if someone could do that hedge article, that'd be great. Well, there's, uh, there's good news. Um, depends on how you look at it, Ryan. <laughs> uh, next article is rig counts rise. So, this was actually a, a big surprise for me. So, I did not anticipate this. This is from March the 6th. So, um, granted, this is 10 days ago. Stephanie the intern. Stephanie the intern. Uh, but the, the rig counts actually rose from 404 to 415 in the middle of some of this. Uh, yeah, and they went up one last week as well. So they're up again. Yeah, we're, we're in a rig count boom. Yeah. yeah. One rig boom. One rig boom. We're back yeah. to the one rig boom again. Well, you would That's what caused all this problem. Let's go back to October when we had the one rig boom. We called it then. The one rig boom was too much. So we cannot have any more one rig booms. The market can't handle it. Well, rigs keep going up. I, I guess that would be connected to hedges in some way because there's no way they're able to do that with the current prices. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you, you're sitting there going, "Wow, okay, how do we, you know, how do we handle that? We got more rigs coming on, and hopefully, I, I don't think we're going to see that much longer." Um, but anyways, yeah. well, here's an idea. Here's an idea. Uh, Buffett, Icon, uh, y'all, we need to we need to get. Call us. Together. Yeah, call us. Call us. Call us. Uh, we're, you know, a we're million a month. Uh, you know, prepaid as, as for three months. Consultant. You go through us, create an idea of maybe backing a couple of these companies out there to drill like crazy, put them out of business, buy them, and then uh, 
crush OPEC. Let's 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 go after OPEC and Russia. Let's put them out of business. Yeah. The other um, thing is, if you want all the terrible ideas, we could provide those as well. So, like, if you want to know what not to do, we could. You know, you know, from, uh, let me tell you right now. Do you know how many businesses in the history of the world would pay a million dollars to get the bad ideas so they didn't waste their time chasing that? Oh, we would be good at that. <laughs> We should be good at that. That's, <laughs> That's our new business model. Get the bad business ideas out first, Inc. That's what we're going to do. Yep. I mean, there have been billions literally lost over bad ideas. Just call us up. We'll give you all of our bad ideas, and then you'll know, don't do that. And we will save you tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars. The ROI there is, you can't, you know, it's unforeseeable. Yeah. I mean, we have the whiteboards already. So oh, yeah, we're ready. We, we're we ready don't to need any supplies. We, we, have, we have the mines available. So, uh, Ryan, there was an article that came out March 13th. Trump orders mass oil buys to fill up reserve. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm not sure what to make of this. I think there were some numbers out about how much uh, oil the U.S. Uh, government was going to purchase. Do we think this is really going to make uh, a big difference? Is this going to keep people uh, working? Is this going to keep people out of bankruptcy and um, keep drilling? I, you know, the, S, the SPR, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, I've wondered about this. announcement has some insight. First off, has the administration said who they're buying the oil from? Because I don't know, like, how they make that determination. You know, little old EMP out there, do they, are they getting to sell to the SPR uh, proportionate to their market share? Or is it just Harold Ham because he's always whining about something that he get to sell? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. So, uh Mr. Ham, if you want to come on and defend your uh, your dispositions on the show, we would be more than happy to have yeah, you. Yeah, come on, Harold. Come on. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know about that. I, I've wondered. And another thing, I saw some people speculating that the SPR is not really composed of a lot of our, you know, our, our type of oil as it is, and so they're not sure how that's going to work. Now, I'm not, again, I don't really pay attention to, I kind of follow the, the general level and when they sell it off and stuff, but the composition and stuff is really kind of... Um, Kind of outside of what what I what I follow, so I'm not sure. Um, it, to me, when it when it came out Friday, it sounded more like an empty platitude than anything else. But but I could be wrong. Um, and so we could, it's something definitely need to talk to Anas to see if he thinks it's going to have any significant. Because we're looking for a significant bump, right? That's what that's what the people listening to the show is. What me and you, we need a significant bump. If if it's keeping prices from going from 29 to 30, that's a that's a non that's a, you know, whatever. Who cares? If it's going to put prices from 30 to 45. Okay, well, now we're talking about a different game. I don't think that's even a remote possibility. Um, so I think you know, we'd have to have to see uh, you know, what's going on. But I, I, I think it's just one of those deals where um, I think even Jurgen didn't Jurgen say in the earlier article that he didn't think it was a big deal? Yeah, he didn't. That's yeah. why he didn't think there was a path out. Yeah. Okay, we have a special guest joining us today, Dr. Anas Alhaji, an energy expert, uh, market expert based in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Anas, uh, we've been seeing you pretty active on uh, on LinkedIn and Twitter and uh, excited to get you on today. You've had a lot of interesting takes over the last couple of weeks, so uh, glad to have you on the show today. Really, really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it's good to have on an expert because we have on three non-experts, and so we get on one expert. It's really It really boosts the... The education of the show, so we, we appreciate Thank you coming you. on. Um, so let's go back, Josh. Uh, so this isn't this isn't a gotcha. This is let's kind of walk it back. Last time we were on here, it was in January, and I think you said, "Hey, we expect the price to kind of stay where it was, which is fifty-seven. Now that before that, that was before coronavirus 
took over the world, and the Russians and the Saudis got into their their fit. Um, so obviously the prediction has changed because of the market has changed drastically. Walk us through from your perspective what has happened these last few months with both of those, and which and, and where we're at today. Which is actually having a more impact on the market? Is it the 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 the, the coronavirus and the and the, and the uh, fall of the demand, or is it the Russians and the Saudis and the price war they're having? Sure, I'll do that. I just would like to mention something important in the beginning. Yes. When you have a market collapse like the one we have today. M- Mathematical models and computer models that work on forecasting uh, all demand and all supply and pricing are useless. They are they cannot operate in such environment. And therefore, any forecast you hear from the experts is it just a guess guesstimate. It's just their guess. It's not the result of any modeling at all. Yeah. Because the models do not work in case of crisis, and they are not built. What a crisis! Well, we're, we're, let's make it, let's take a, let's take a real example there. How can you predict how long France is shut down over the weekend? How do you how do you measure that impact? How do you measure the job loss that's just going to create? How do you measure how their economy is going to come back? We don't know what's going to happen when when France Abs- starts back absolutely. up. And so that, that's what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. So there is no way those models can predict anything. So anything we hear from experts today is just a guess, which is their best educated guess. Yeah. Very very good point. So we, we were supposed to walk into 2020 where uh, prices should stay in the 50s, as we talked about last time. OPEC met in December with OPEC Plus. They decided to do an extra cut. But the only way they can agree to the cut is to agree to Russia's proposal that the extra cut is only for three months. The problem is there is no scheduled meetings after three months. Those meetings are twice a year in June and November or December. So they had to schedule an emergency meeting or extraordinary meeting in March because they chose the cut to be three months. And the idea was that things will improve by March and therefore they are going to resend that additional cut. So all their thinking at that time was, this is a temporary cut, we will finish it in March. Then within a month, the coronavirus hit China, and the news got worse and worse since then. Quarantine whole cities and cancellation of tens of thousands of flights reduce the demand significantly for oil. And OPEC members realized that we need to do something. And as the news got worse, they decided to study the situation through a committee they have called the Joint Technical Committee, which is a joint between OPEC and non-OPEC. So it's, it's part of OPEC Plus. This committee met and they brought in experts. And after two days of listening to experts, they extended that to a third day because the issue was really big. They invited the Chinese ambassador to Austria to hear from him about what's going on in China. And they realized that the 
as the Saudi Prince uh, uh, Abdulaziz bin Salman, who is the uh, oil minister, they realized that the house is on fire. And, and let me just real quick to clarify this. That meeting, OPEC, if they would have left the meeting that you're talking about, um, they could have only proposed cuts. They couldn't have actually made them binding. It would have taken a, an additional meeting. That was a non-binding meeting, correct? No, the GTC job is just to recommend. Yes, and that's important because a lot of people don't. Right. They, they think OPEC's meeting and they can do something. Sometimes they, as you said, they meet, but it's not really those two big meetings. Correct. So it's a it's so, a proposal meeting almost. Correct. So this is a committee that studies that studies the market, talk right. to experts, listens, uh, watch presentations, and then they make uh, short recommendations to the whole body of OPEC and non-OPEC. And. Uh, they realized that the house is on fire. And the result was extending the December cut to the end of 2020, which was 2.1 in total, which includes 400,000 barrels of uh, Saudi oil that they volunteered to cut on their own. And they proposed an additional 600,000 cut to June. And they were scheduled to meet in June anyway. Mm, right. The problem is the Russians objected to that. OPEC supposed to meet earlier than March, the, the already scheduled emergency meeting, but Russia refused. And the, then at that time, the media started talking about problems between Russia and Saudi Arabia. But we did not know what's going on. Right, and that was the meeting that, that Novak said that the Russians, after they left, the Russians needed to study more. They needed to analyze the markets more. They wanted more, more time to think. And at the time, it was, hey, maybe by Monday or Tuesday, we might come back to you guys. But, but I don't think they ever did come back. At least I didn't hear about it formally until right. the next meeting. So the, the best formulation of the whole events basically was made by the Saudi energy minister. He said, look, the house is on fire. <laughs> Do you bring the garden hose to extinguish the fire or do you call the fire department? Mm -hmm. If you bring the garden hose, the whole house will be burnt with everything in it, with everyone in it. If you call the fire department, they are going to soak the furniture. Everything is going to be wet. So they are going to ruin the furniture because of the amount of water and other things that they are going to spray the house with. But we save the house. Mm. So the Russians wanted to use the garden hose. The Saudis wanted to call the fire department. Mm -hmm. That's really the main difference between the two countries. Yeah, and let me, let me interject real quick there on that, because this is something that I've seen um, a lot talk about. The Saudis and Russians, at least from outward appearances, they were getting along pretty good. Uh, Novak and... Uh, Oh, uh, the former Saudi minister, um, Ali Ali Al-Fadi. Al-Fadi. But but over the last what six months, it feels like the Russians and the Saudis have started to distance themselves. They, it feels like from kind of watching it that they they're, they're not as close as they were, and so it feels like we have a legit reason to believe that they are, um, for whatever reason you want to get into, but they're there's real tension between these two countries is. Um, um, because they were close, it kind of felt like they were, you know, buds. But it seems like now that there is a a, a legitimate tension. There's not just a smokescreen for a larger diabolical plan. Correct. So I, I will discuss that in some details okay. in a few minutes. So what happened is when they went to the actual meeting that was planned for the fifth and the sixth of March, OPEC met on the fifth, and OPEC Plus supposed to meet on the sixth. 
OPEC decided that we needed an additional cut of 1.5 million, not 600, where one comes from OPEC members and 0.5 comes from non-OPEC members. And this is until June. So, say that again. One comes from OPEC, which would be the Saudi side, and 0.5 comes from the Russian side, correct? Russians and everyone else. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah but I'm saying if you, yeah, just, yeah, from one, uh, the, so the majority side was, the, the majority of the cut came from the Saudi side. Correct. Yes. So, the problem is, uh, the market got bullish that day on the, on the news. Hmm. And they thought, okay, we are going to get a cut. I personally believe that we were going to cut, get a cut even Friday afternoon. I was thinking that we are going to get a cut. The problem is the Russians refused and Novak had to go back to Russia, to Moscow on Thursday to consult with Putin or whoever he is consulting with. That creates a problem because the Saudi energy minister was there to negotiate with full authority, but seems Novak did not have any authority and had to consult with higher authority every minute. That created a kind of a problem from the beginning because if imagine if you are the Saudi part and you are look, talking to the other guy who is not going to give you any answer because he has to call or he has to go and ask, it's really create tension in negotiations. But the problem got worse when Novak came back on Friday morning and the attitude was very clear. No negotiations. We are going to go for only rollover until June. But the, the night before, at night, the Saudi oil minister summoned all the OPEC ministers and they discussed extension of what they decided in the morning from June to the end of the year. And they agreed to extend the 1.5 million to the end of the year. That's on Thursday night. When Putin, uh, when uh, Novak came back the second day and he said, no additional cut period, not 600, nothing. It's only rollover until June. It was very clear that to everyone, there is no uh, middle way to meet. So they provided several proposals, including going back to the Thursday morning proposal, which is 1.5 only to June, and they rejected that. They went back through the 600, etc. The, the Russians refused all the proposals, period. They came in just to tell others what they want. They did not come to negotiate. So by, during the bilateral meetings on a Friday morning and afternoon with the Saudis, the OPEC, OPEC plus ministers meeting was delayed several hours because those guys won't come out of their private meetings. But when they came out and it was very clear there was no agreement, there was no sense of having a lengthy meeting for the OPEC plus and the meeting was very short. They walked out and Novak declared to the public that Russian oil companies will produce at maximum capacity starting April 1st without any restraints. So the price war started from that moment. That's really what started the whole thing, that declaration in public in front of the Saudis, in front of everyone. So the journalist asked the Saudi energy minister, how do you respond to, uh, to Novak? And his response was, I will leave you wondering. 
and that wandering basically did not last more than 15 hours by <laughs> yeah, Saturday he didn't, morning. He didn't leave him wandering for long. <laughs> uh, by Saturday morning, the Saudis slashed prices in unprecedented manner, and they literally crashed the market by just announcing a decrease in prices. Remember, we are today in the middle of March. Mm -hmm. The cuts, the, the increase in production that the Saudis are talking about and the increase in supply is in April. Right. So we are not even there. And we already, prices are below $30 today in the United States. So just because of the announcement of the cuts uh, in prices and the announcement and increase in production uh, uh, destroyed the market. So in a sense, once we see this increase in the future, this is already being priced in. So what the Saudis did basically is they decided to lower prices and they did it in a way where it was very clear that they are targeting the Russians because they did, they gave the highest cut, which is $10 to parts of Europe where they buy Russian crude. And uh, representatives marketing representatives, whether they belong to Aramco or other companies, basically started calling uh, Russian uh, clients and telling them, look, you know, if you buy from me, I'll give you this discount. And they were able to secure uh, most of the amount that they want to increase and send to Europe because most of the increase will go to Europe. As you heard in the news, they char chartered an additional uh, 31 uh, VLLC to ship this crew to various places. But the highest cut went to Europe. And as you heard in the news uh, uh, recently that they have a contract with Belarus, which is an irony here uh, because uh, Belarus was used to import Russian oil. Uh, some people made a big deal out of it. Uh, they shouldn't. It's really the, the purchase of Belarus of Saudi oil is not a big deal at all because of the following. Uh, Russia, uh, because of the IMO, some Russian crude prices increased. So they asked Belarus to match that price. Belarus got angry and rejected the uh, Russian oil. So they wanted to buy oil from Kazakhstan and Norway. Uh, they had a contract with Kazakhstan, but Russia is in between those two countries. So to ship that oil, it has to go through the Russian territory. So the Russians basically were able to block it. So they were not able to get the Kazakh oil, but they were able to get the Norwegian oil and others from the other side. Uh, so Belarus was already in the market for any oil they can get. And all of a sudden you have the cheap Saudi oil, so they were able to get it. So it's not a big deal, but still kind of, uh, kind of slab on the rest and reminding the Russians I can go to the heart of your market mm -hmm. and sell my crude. Mm -hmm. Who who can you know? I've read varying reports um, over the Saudis' economy. I've I've read is seventy percent based upon oil and gas. The Russians is forty. But all that aside, I don't know if those numbers are even right. Who can last the longest in this price war? Okay. First of all, I think uh, uh, that the, the question itself is wrong. Okay. Okay. I'll, that's, I'll never good when you, that's, in a that's never good yeah. when you ask the wrong question. Right. The host. Uh, <laughs> it is a very common question, by the way. I mean, everyone is asking it, but this is not the way it should be framed. Okay. How should uh, we I'll frame it? Why. 
Okay, I'll, I'll tell you why in a okay. minute. And uh, the other issue is most of the reports that we've seen in the media, they were missing the points. It's not about who survived longer. It is about one single fact that at any prices around today's prices, Russian companies cannot invest a single dollar to expand or to even maintain current production. So let's 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 recap that. At today's price, thirty something dollars, the Russians cannot afford to expand production or to maintain production. That that's correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. While we already have seen from the Saudis that they are expanding production capacity by a million barrels a day. That's really where the focus should be. Hmm. It's not about who can do longer as much as what is the end result for the expansion of production in the second phase. Hmm. Because if this lasts, let's say, we all know, we all know that both of them can survive for six months or a year. I don't think anyone will disagree with this. But what will happen after one year? After one year, Russian production is down, Saudi production is up. It seems um, that, and and tell me if I'm wrong here, maybe maybe I'm thinking about it wrong, it seems that the stakes are too high that my, my concern with this, Anas, is that these guys, the Russians and the Saudis, they're going to push this thing until it hurts if they have to, because to lose is to lose a status, especially from the Saudi standpoint, that they don't want to lose. Um, I feel like they're dug in pretty hard here, and this is not some fly-by-night deal that you could get in the room and break bread over and it'd be fixed. It feels like they're really this is a serious issue that both sides are taking serious, and a short-term resolution seems unlikely. Is that is that a correct or incorrect? That is a fair assessment of what's going on, but we have to remember that these events happened before. We've seen it in 98, 99, mm. and the Russians cooperated. We've seen it in 2014, 15, and the Russians basically ended up cooperating. Okay. So these things happened before, and to make a U-turn, it happened, mm. okay. whether from the Russians or the Saudis or both of them. But to prove your point and, and, and to build on it, basically, it is very clear that whoever wants to make the turnaround, they still need a face-saving approach. Yeah. They are not going to yield just like this and accept the... Uh, they, they need a safe-facing approach to be able to do it, and the other side has to understand this. Right, exactly. The Saudis or the, uh, or the Russians. But here is the point that everyone should pay attention to. Let's say if this lasts for a year, within less than a year, prices will start creeping up no matter what because the losses from shale and production of shale and other places, we will see shut-ins in China, we'll see shut-ins in India, and we'll see delay in investment and probably cancellations. We already have seen uh, uh, expenditure cuts by shale companies and others. That's going to show within four to six months in production. And if this is going to last for a year, the loss in production could add up worldwide to about 2 million barrels a day. Here is the problem. If you look at the forecast in January, they should add about 1.7 to 1.8 million. 
So the difference is two plus 1.8. We are talking about a shortage of 3.8 million within a year. So even if this price, price war continues, the market is going to hunt both Saudi Arabia and Russia, and it's going to catch up with them because of the major decline in production. The other point is the following, that at this time, no stimulus, whether from the government, whether from the Federal Reserve Bank, or from any central bank around the world, or from lower prices of oil is going to work. Historically, in normal circumstances, those stimuluses work. Even lower oil prices work, and they increase demand. Any stimulus from the government or the central bank or lower interest rate stimulates demand. Now we are in a very rare and unique situation in the world where we have what I call the oil demand trap. The oil demand trap, and people can check this on my Twitter account and, and see more explanation of it. The, uh, this trap means that lower prices will not increase demand. Lower interest rates will not increase demand. Higher government spending and any injection from the uh, Federal Reserve Bank is not going to stimulate demand. And that goes back to and that goes back to what we we're saying earlier is because the the global economy is the way it's shutting down. You can't there's 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 nothing to there's nothing to stimulate. There's nothing going on. Absolutely, absolutely. So that takes us takes us back to the idea of the Russians and what the Russians want. Because if the Russians thought that we need lower prices, because the first reaction you already mentioned it, the Russians thought let's wait and see, but the Saudis said, well, if we wait, the house is going to be burnt. And the second approach was, we need lower prices to stimulate world economy. Well, the world economy is not going to be stimulated. So this idea is completely wrong. The third idea is we want to kill growth uh, in shale. Well, whether they do it or not, Corona is doing it anyway. So the whole, the, the three objectives of the Russians basically are not correct in this case. So we are going to end up with a situation where supply is going to decrease, but so demand is not going to respond to any of those stimuluses. So there will be a lot of pain in the short run. But once we have a recovery, and we don't know when that recovery is going to happen, but once we have a recovery, then we are going to have a recovery in demand that's going to correspond to a decline in supply. And that's where everything is going to change. And we are going to talk about, by that time, about uh, higher prices, and in some cases, if we go even to 22, probably prices that we cannot stop. Yeah, and, and no one would have ability to stop them. Okay, so that, that let me just kind of recap what we're saying here. Then make sure we're on the same page. Um, right now, what we're saying, Josh, make sure I'm following along, is the price is low, production's up, and normally that would be good, but it's not good now because there's no demand out there in the global economy. Right, so the, so the prices are kind of they're kind of as you said the trap. As Correct. we move forward, the supply is going to fall off. I think you said three plus something million barrels, three point eight million barrels. So the supply, the production rather, is going to drop off at such a pace that it will actually because we the, the economy has to come back at some level at some point. So as the economy comes back up, um, the production that's going to go offline during this economic downturn, the shell production, and maybe in China and wherever will actually get up under that number, and then the prices will start to rise. And then 
you will see the economy stimulate on some level because you will have some low prices, but you're going to find yourself in a spot where you have a deficit in production that was caused back here in 2020, that in 2021, 2022, you're going, oh my gosh, prices are skyrocketing. We, you know, how do we get a handle on it? And then the show producers, you know, there's not as many of them, and so they got to respond differently, and OPEX got to respond, and you can kind of see yourself in a spot where 2021, 2022, um, you can't stop the price because there's just not as many people to put barrels on the market anymore. Is that a good... Did, 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 did? Uh, no, uh, your, your description is perfect. Okay. You, you summed it up uh, beautifully in this case. Okay. Uh, and uh, there are, I think, one of the issues to uh, kind of look at it. I think bigger picture... Uh, we have to look at Saudi Arabia, Russia, and the United States. We cannot exclude the United States uh, from this uh, price war. Because what happened here is uh, the market has no manager. Hmm. Uh, the manager was Saudi Arabia. And when there is no market management, government stepped in. And hmm. that's what Trump did. And the Trump reaction was he couldn't provide the uh, U.S. oil industry with any financial help. Uh, because he needed the approval of the regulators and he is not going to get it. Uh, so the only way he can help is to order the fill up of the strategic petroleum reserves. And as you know, when he announced this the other day on Friday, prices went up by 5%. Just to, for the listeners to be clear on this one, if he wants to fill up the, uh, the SPR, the strategic petroleum reserves, he cannot buy shale and store it because what's in there already in those caverns is where the space is, is mostly medium sour. Yeah, that's what we were talking about earlier. We, we, you know, we, we, we had a story about that. It was like, well, you know, there's several questions here. Let's kind of get into this, Josh. We're saying, you know, who's he going to buy it from? Like, that's the first thing. Is he going to buy Harold Hamsel or how does he determine who's, which company in the U.S. is he? It's not like you're buying, you're in a, uh, Saudi Arabia and you could buy off of Ramco. There's, Multiple companies, you got to figure out how is you going to parse that. But then you got blending the oil, like you're talking about. So walk us through some of the problems with uh, mix mixing the the storage of the oil. You are absolutely correct. We are going to end up with so many problems. If he wants really to fill it up, the best crude is going to be the Mexican Maya, that matches what's already in there. But the Mexicans do not; their production is declining. It's not going up. So he needs the additions. So probably he already have only what is declined what the demand declined for the Mexican crude because of the economic situation he can use that uh, some of the Iraqi oil and uh, some of Latin American oil basically that will be more uh, more appropriate but the irony here is the amount the exact amount that they they are going to purchase for the SPR is exactly the amount of the Saudi increase for the whole month of April. <laughs> they are identical. Whether this is a coincidence or uh, just happened that way, uh, we don't know. But it's equal. And uh, people should understand that oil in the SPR is not like oil in the commercial inventories. Commercial inventories are liquid and can be used at any time. Hmm. This is locked in oil. Yeah. So it does not mean increase in inventories that's going to affect uh, affect prices. Right. The other point on the U.S. reaction. Well, is uh, well on, let, me, let me clarify that. The oil won't go into the 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 main way the market seemed to react on the inventory numbers. It won't go into that inventory. It'll go into the SPR. So it would it help a little bit because you wouldn't see a build in inventory because it's going to the SPR. I mean, I know the SPR is reported, but it's really the 
the uh, the normal storage inventory that, that people seem to be tracking compared to the SPR. Correct. And people who are worried about the massive increase in inventories because of this price war, they should remember that some of the Saudi oil is coming from inventories. So they are transferring it just mm. from one inventory to the other. There is disagreement now on what the amount. Today we heard the Aramco CEO when he was talking about the Aramco financial results that it will be only 300,000. Many people have doubt about that and they think it's way higher than 300,000. So we will see what's going on. But looking at the uh, US reaction, we have the Harold Ham reaction. And the Harold Ham reaction is kind of understandable because he lost $2 billion last Monday. That's a lot of money in case so, you're that's 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 a lot of money in case the listeners <laughs> are wondering. We we're experts on that. We can do that. That's our expertise, losing money. We've got that one figured out. <laughs> so he lost two billion dollars and his reaction was uh, he filed the, uh, or he wanted to file a petition with the Department of Commerce to investigate dumping, dumping by yeah, yeah. Uh, Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And then let me just that's, that's those anti dumping regulations, uh, as someone who's dealt with that a little bit, those are terrible laws in general. So I am not a well, fan it's not of those. Really t- basically, I, there are a few things here about, about him being asking for this because he understood this better than others. He is, he is the one who attacked shale producers and supported OPEC and Saudi Arabia in their cuts. Hmm. He is the one who said that shale producers did not understand the market and they are overproducing. He is the one who attacked the EIA and said EIA is overestimating shale production. But what he missed here. Well, well is, hold on. You, you forgot one key thing here, Nas. He's also the one who sold off all of his hedges back in the last downturn because he thought the price was going to rebound at 60 and lost his investors hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. That's him, too, as well. Absolutely. Yeah, and he's so, the one who was, be clear. Uh, who was leading the efforts to allow, uh, during Obama administration, to allow U.S. crude exports. Yeah. So that we give him credit for that. <laughs> but he forgot several things here. Every time oil prices declined, U.S. independent producers basically sued or filed for a petition accusing those countries of dumping oil in the market. And every time they did it, they lost. The U.S. government did not agree with them. Ironically, if you go back to the 19, June uh, uh, 1999, when the independent producers filed a petition against Saudi Arabia, Mexico, Venezuela, and Iraq, and they accused them of dumping oil on the United States. They lost that case. The U.S. government was against it. Strangely enough, the American Petroleum Institute, which they are members of, went against it, and the head of the institute testified against them in court. The top 20, country, the, the top 20 companies in the United States were against it, and they testified against it in court. Many organizations basically were against it. The law states that you need 25% of the industry to complain for it to look at, into it. And we don't have that since all the major oil companies basically are not supporting it. And one of the historic ironies is that the entry of the oil majors to shale, whom increased production and compete with Saudi Arabia, they are helping the Saudis now because uh, they are major producers of shale, so their percentage increased, and they are opposing the anti-dumping case. Yeah. 
We are up against the clock here. So one final quick question for you, if you got an opinion on China, um, assuming that you know, China has reported they are on the downhill slope of the coronavirus. My anticipation is China, because they have a large middle class that they want to keep happy, is going to try to stimulate their economy, even if that means wasting a bunch of money on infrastructure projects that aren't really relevant. Um, I expect to see the Chinese to try to do everything in their power to try to get things going over there. Uh, I'm not saying it's going to have an impact on the prices or much or not, but do you expect the Chinese to really try to ramp up their economy once they feel like they're completely out of the woods on this thing? No, that's absolutely cor correct. And once the coronavirus is over, we are going to see a major uh, uh, increase in China's uh, oil demand. Uh, but here I would like just to, since we are out of time, to mention one, one uh, or, or a couple of uh, major ideas. Okay. The first one is the, the grand prize for Saudi Arabia and OPEC is not really the growth in China. The grand prize is still the United States. It's still the largest consumer in the world. If shale production declines, you are talking about steady growth and a big chunk of sales to America. That's number one. The second one is, it seems that the end result of the Saudi policy right now is to reorient the whole world oil industry where the center of gravity and instead of by being bipolar between Saudi Arabia and Russia or uh, triple between Saudi Arabia, Russia and the United States, they are going to bring back the center of gravity to the Gulf, which been the case for about 50 years. So that's the end result really is bringing the center of gravity to the Gulf. And if they uh, uh, continue with their policy for several months or to the end of the year, it is very clear all indications point that the center of gravity is going to, sh to shift to the Gulf. Okay. We will link to your Twitter, which you are quite active on in the show notes. So folks don't follow you. We'll, we'll link to that there so they can be sure to follow. You are a avid tweeter who is out there <laughs> breaking down the oil and gas markets. Most of the time, I don't like what you have to say because it's bad news. So I'm looking, I'm, sorry. For, I'm looking forward to when I can enjoy reading your tweets again. So. Yeah, be, being realistic is painful these, these days. <laughs> Oh, 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 hey, I do need to ask. Final, uh, one, one quick question. We, we have seen a lot of, um, Josh, about, talking about at the beginning of the show, we've seen a lot of people throw out a lot of ideas. Uh, America jo should join OPEC. Uh, America should shut down all of its production. Um, kind of our stance is there's not a good idea for what America could do right now. Each company is going to have to figure out how to navigate its stream. There's the economic impact from the employees and the folks on the ground. Uh, but there any, either of those two first ideas, America's calling up OPEC saying, hey, we want to join, which is really not a practical idea, but let's assume it was, or America literally shutting down all production, or, any, or either one of those viable options that should be discussed at large, um, in your opinion. America already joined OPEC when Trump ordered the fill-up of the SPR. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> All right. But, but American companies cannot join OPEC or attend any of the meetings no. because it's, it is against antitrust laws. No. Yeah, right, right. I know, I I know, right. I know, I know, I know you have legal stuff, but, but, but that is if they, if they the change best solution, The best solution basically is, beside the state acting in various ways, for example, for the state of Texas to regulate flaring, mm -hmm. Okay, that's one way. Uh, so it would be a government action, really, rather than company action. But really, the best thing that ever can happen to shale and happen to the U.S. is my pinned, my pinned tweet that 
Shale is a very fat child, and it needs to be fit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, agree. And letting the market work itself out and figure out who is fit to do it is probably the best way to do that instead of trying to um, regulate our way uh, into that solution. Because then you get. I, I, I strongly believe that the shale industry, when it's fit, is going to be a very viable industry where the investors and the operators and everyone is going to be happy. Hmm. But we need the fit child to grow and be a strong man. Okay. You cannot do it while you are too fat. Okay. Well, Anas, this has been wonderful. You're always insightful. Um, we'll probably like to get you back on as things change, but for now, we've we've got our doom and gloom that we can handle for, <laughs> for a right. while. Uh, thank you. This was short notice to come on, so thank you thank for you that as well. Much. I really we appreciate, appreciate it. it. Thank you, sir. Well, big thanks to Anas for coming on the show today. He's always uh, full of brilliant insights, so a uh, big, big, big thank you to him for coming on the show today. And now for our Texas Roundup. Uh, so we've gathered together a few stories. Big shout out to Stephanie, the intern. She uh, she pulled together quite Man. a few articles. It's amazing how many more news articles coming out now with Stephanie at the helm. It's crazy. It's almost like she's actually doing her job. It's really weird. It's quality over quantity, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so first one, Fairfield Geotechnologies to acquire Permian 3D Seismic Survey. While I'm here, Ryan, I met with a buddy uh, a couple weeks ago, and I have some questions about this. I, I'm, there's a, a when these people go out and, and acquire this um, the seismic data, do they go out and do it independently and then sell it to multiple companies, or does uh, say EMP Company X buy the seismic data from them? individually so that, that was a question that i was asked and I, I said i was gonna follow up on it so i'm not answering the question right now i'm just yeah I just thought my, about yeah it. my understanding and i could be wrong here but the, we've been we've looked at doing seismic stuff before and it was always um through a company paying us to go do it because they thought that they you know they wanted to see what was in that area now there could be other ways you could do it but um you know um we were we didn't do the job, but it would be like making up names here. Exxon saying, hey, you know, we need to get seismic shot in this area. And so we'd be doing it for Exxon. There might be other ways. There might be groups other, but, but that was just well, how it was done for the, us. The idea was potentially that, say, seismic company X could go out and just do it in, on, on their own, do some seismic uh, on, say, 50,000 acres. And mm -hmm. then they could sell it to Exxon, Chevron, Oxy. Right. Know, well, so you'd have to have the geologists that would kind of think that there is something there to do yeah. it. And so you had yeah. to you had to fund a lot of stuff before you can kind of yeah. kind of get there. All right. Next article: BJ Services Athon Energy team to deploy natural gas fueled fracturing fleet in the Hainesville. So uh, natural gas, you know, we thought that there may be some opportunities there, uh, but you know the prices have actually started going down uh, on the natural gas side. So um, the Barnett's going to rise again from the dead. Chesapeake 2.0. Chesapeake will come back. That, let's, let's go ahead and lay it down now. I'm going to say this. I will make a prediction now. There is a better chance. There's a better chance of Chesapeake coming back and establishing dominance of the oil and gas market than there is of the coronavirus killing... 100,000? 100,000 Americans. Bold prediction. Bold prediction. Bold prediction of the day. Now, now you ain't talking if this thing lasts for, I don't know if it's going to go, you know, when we vaccine. You ain't talking like, we're talking about this year. 
This year. I'll go all the way to December. It this better year. kill 100,000. As bad as this thing is, 10 million people are going to lose their job. Uh, it, it better be serious. So, Chesapeake, there's your, there's your vote of confidence for the day. Faskin Oil, nonprofit statewide, mark loss of Normert Dickman. Warren Buffett's oxy bet that infuriated Icon is hit hard by oil crash. Permian operator Matador Resources to cut rig count in half. We saw several companies that did this. I think Parsley, Diamondback, Matador. Yeah. Um, Devin Apache Murphy Oil joined growing number of producers slashing budgets. And last but not least, 2020 M&A Outlook, analyzing Permian Basin Consolidation. If you want to check this out, um, this uh, analyst is looking at WPX, Oxy, and Battalion Oil as top acquisition targets. Interesting read. If you want to take a look at it, we'll link that in the show notes. With that, Ron, I think that uh, wraps us up. Okay, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. If Again, if you have a job, if you're looking for a job, you have a job, email it in to Nate. We will get that out there on our uh, newsletter um, or our LinkedIn website, LinkedIn page. Nate's in charge of all that. He will figure it out, but we will do that. Again, that's no charge. I'm not trying to make a dollar off anybody. Just trying to help folks out. Um, and uh, until next time, keep fun. Mm-hmm.